That's great music, and we had a great day last Sunday. We baptized, I think it was 84 people between Fremont and uh, Tiffin, so we were really excited about that. Another thing that happened, maybe because we had baptism, obviously, but uh, for the first time on a non-holiday Sunday, without it being Mother's Day or something like that, we're actually over 3,000 people at our three campuses, which was kind of a cool milestone for us. We had over 1,600 here in Fremont. In Tiffin, they had over 1,000 people last Sunday. They have three services on Sunday morning. Their second one was standing room only and people left because they couldn't get seats. So that had never happened before that way on a regular Sunday morning, although again, baptism celebration. So great things happening. We're excited what's going on. And another thing that happened last Sunday is after our services, 16 people, uh, when we talked about salvation, came and got packets last Sunday. So God is blessing and we just appreciate all of you being with us. And uh, as God uses all of us to come together and do church the way he wants church done, hopefully. And uh, so we're excited about that. We are in a series, it's called Luke, and we're studying the life of Jesus Christ through the gospel or the, the book of Luke. Luke is one of four first century men that wrote, who are contemporaries of Jesus, who wrote about the life of Christ. And so we're working through Luke. We're in chapter five now. And as we've been doing that, we realize that once Jesus started his public ministry, it was way more controversial than probably we think. Uh, we talked a couple weeks ago how when he preached his first message in his hometown synagogue in Nazareth, that by the time he was done, the people there, his neighbors, his former neighbors and friends, they wanted to kill him, right? Literally kill him. And so Jesus made Capernaum his headquarters, his base for ministry. That's on the very north coast of the Sea of Galilee. Um, that goes by another name also, Gennesaret, which is gonna show up in our text. But that's where Jesus was. Most of his ministry early on was in the northern part of Israel in a region that's called, after the Sea of Galilee, that's called simply Galilee. And so he has started teaching people. He has done miracles. People are flocking out to see him, maybe see him do a miracle. But they were also just flocking to hear what he had to say because more and more people started believing that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. And so we were in chapter five last time, and now we're gonna talk about the calling of some of Jesus's disciples, and they sort of are on either side of the passage we looked at last time. So we're gonna start at beginning in chapter five, and then we're gonna skip over what happened last time when the guys lowered their buddy down through the roof into the later part of the chapter to get the calling of Peter and then the calling of Matthew. So that's what we're gonna cover. So I'd like us to focus our attention to to Luke chapter five, and we're beginning in verse one. Again, people are, are pressing around, they're wanting to see him, Jesus needs space to teach, and it goes this way. Now it happened that while the crowd was pressing around him and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, which is the Sea of Galilee, and he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake. 
But the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little way from the land. And he sat down and began teaching the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down your nets for a catch. So that kind of sets up everything that's happening. Jesus is, he's been teaching. He's now on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. The crowds, as we could imagine, are pressing in. Some people want to touch him. They want to talk to him. He can't, he needs a little space in order to teach. He sees a couple of boats. The guys who own the boats are a little ways off on the beach, washing their nets. He steps in one. He asks Simon Peter to, to put out, to create a little distance so that he can teach. And this, what we're gonna see in this incident in history is the calling of Peter. And later we'll see the calling of Matthew. But these callings basically broke out in a, a certain kind of a pattern. And that's what I wanna point out to you. And the first thing is that these people notice Jesus's authority. They recognize him as an authority in their life. Now, when this happens, when Jesus asks Peter to put out a little ways in the boat so he could use his boat as a teaching platform, this is not the first time that Jesus has met Peter. As a matter of fact, John chapter one, I told you there are four books about the life of Jesus. Well, in the first chapter of John, who was also a disciple, we're told that um, Andrew, Peter's brother, was, would actually go out and listen to John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ. And as he would listen to John the Baptist, one, John would say things like, hey, the Messiah's coming, I'm not him. He's coming and I'm not worthy to tie his shoes. And he also pointed out Jesus at one of these times and basically said, you all should be following him. And then Andrew then met Jesus. Actually, Andrew and another guy we don't know met Jesus. Well, then Andrew came and got his brother Peter or Simon. He got Simon and brought Simon to Jesus so that he could meet Jesus. Simon met Jesus and then Jesus gave him the name Peter, Rock. So that he became Simon Peter, an additional name. Didn't take his old name away, just gave him another name. And so Simon Peter. So Simon Peter is aware of Jesus's ministry. The situation is he and Andrew were on a boat. They'd been fishing all night long. They didn't catch anything. And their partners, two other brothers, to another dad, Zebedee, James and John, they were out in their boat. They didn't catch anything. Now both boats are in, and all four of these guys are cleaning, mending. Probably not a lot of mending needs to happen, but getting all the junk out of their nets so they're ready to go next time they need to fish. They're tired, they've been up all night. It's been a fruitless pursuit. They're bummed out, they're disappointed. And then they see Jesus teaching. They're no doubt listening in as best they could as the crowd's asking him questions. And then Jesus asks, hey, Peter, come, put the boat out a little bit, give me some space to teach. But then at the conclusion of the teaching, Jesus says, hey, let's go out into the deep water and let down the nets. You know, and I gotta tell you, Peter's probably like, Jesus, we've been fishing all night long, you know, with a light and we've used everything. This is not the time to fish. It's the evening's the time to fish. The nighttime's the time to fish. We don't have any advantage here. 
But then Peter, he sort of does it. Somehow, we don't, we don't know what Peter knew about Jesus, but he knew enough to know that his brother was saying, hey, I think Jesus is the Messiah, the one we've been waiting for for hundreds of years. You don't have a full understanding of what Messiah, you know, who he is as Messiah and all that, but at least that much. And so Peter recognized Jesus' authority, so he does what Jesus says. Okay, I've, I've let you use my boat for a teaching platform. Now you want me to go out and go fishing again. A carpenter's gonna tell us, professional fishermen, how to fish. But okay, since you said it, I'll do it. That's the deal. And uh, it picks it up at verse five. And Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing. Anybody ever been efficient and caught nothing? It's kind of like elk hunting. That's happened to me a lot, so it happens. <laughs> caught nothing. But I will do as you say and let down the nets. He said, well, because it's you, we'll do it. And when they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish. Who's, who's the they? Well, Jesus is on the boat, but it's Peter and his brother, Andrew. They enclosed a great quantity of fish and their nets began to break. So they signal to their partners in the other boat. So James and John, they're still on the shore, mess, you know, getting their nets squared away. And then all of a sudden, Peter and Andrew are like, whoa, hey, we got, we got an issue here. Come out here. And so they hurry up, they grab their boat and they head out there with them. And uh, when they had done this, they closed a great quantity of fish and nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat for them to come and help. And when they came, they filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. I mean, this is nuts. You know, Peter's like, oh man, what, you know, all right, I'm gonna do this, probably some object lesson or something and being unfruitful, you know, whatever. You know, I'm gonna do this. They throw the nets down. All of a sudden, there's so many fish, they can't get them out. The nets are tearing. They signal their partners. Their partners see, wow, something's happening. They grab their boat. They get out there as fast as they can. They start unloading these nets as quick as they can, scooping fish into their boats. They have so much fish in both boats that both boats began to sink. And they know, as professional fishermen, this ain't normal. Something's happening. This should not happen like this. What's going on? And that brings a specific response from Peter. And here's the second thing. Hey, we recognize Jesus' authority and then we admit our sin, verse eight. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Kind of a strange response. The biggest catch of their life for both crews, all four of these men who are partners, biggest catch of their life. And Peter responds by throwing himself at Jesus' feet in the boat and saying, go away from me for I'm a sinful man. You can't be around me. Why? Well, because Peter understood through this non-natural event. It's a miracle. We don't know if the miracle is Jesus caused all the fish to jump in or if Jesus in his knowledge just knew all the fish were there. We don't know. But either way, they know this is supernatural. This is not normal. 
This man is from God. He's used, you know, God is empowering him in some way. And that was enough for Peter to say, get away from me. You see, when we find out more about God, and this is a problem in our culture, that we don't see God's purity and righteousness clearly enough. But when we do, when we see his purity, his righteousness, his power, it makes our sin stand out to us. We are very self-aware of our sin if we're seeing God clearly. And so this confession, I'm a sinful man, really that's the way, that's, that's the step, that's what we need to have acceptance by God. And so they're all stunned, all four of these guys are stunned at what just happened. They're trying to process you know, what's going on here? Verse, next verse is verse nine. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not fear, from now on you will be catching men. So here's Peter Depart from me, get away from me. I'm a sinful man. And Jesus is like, hey, don't, don't fear. From now on, you'll be working for me. From now on, you'll be catching men. And so Jesus' call is uh, to, to not just listen to him, but he's calling Peter to follow him. Now, this is a shift in Jesus' ministry because now he starts gathering 12 specific men to be his followers, for him to train as apostles, disciples. And so that's what he does. So here we have then Peter responded. And by the way, it wasn't just Peter that responded. Andrew's there and James and John are there and they all respond the same way. It's just Peter's the one Jesus is addressing. Peter's sort of the leader. He's the one that's talking the most. And so they all leave everything to follow. Verse 11. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. So they left everything and followed him. That doesn't mean that they ceased to have personal property because we know later after Jesus' death, they actually go back fishing for a while. The point is, all of a sudden, they're like, hey, my life is all about doing whatever Jesus says. My life is about following Jesus. I'm no longer a fisherman by trade. I'm a disciple. I'm following him. And all four of these guys make that decision. They leave everything. They, notice, they left everything and followed him, meaning Jesus. And so that's when they, you know, they, they're based out of Capernaum. That's where Peter lives with uh, you know, with his wife and mother-in-law. And, uh, and then there's also Andrew's there, James and John are there. This is when he's teaching in the town and no, people are flocking in, they can't get to him. And we talked about last Sunday where four guys brought a paralyzed friend. They dug through the roof and lowered, Jesus, lowered a, a guy right down in front of Jesus that was paralyzed. Jesus healed him, we already talked about that. So after that event, now Jesus has four disciples. He calls probably the most unlikely disciple of everybody. That's the calling of Levi, or also known as Matthew. But it's a similar response. The same thing's kind of playing out. And it goes like this. First of all, Matthew somehow recognizes 
Jesus' authority. He recognizes that Jesus is somebody that I should follow. Here's the thing. We want to know more about all these guys, but Matthew, we're thinking, we're going to know a lot about Matthew. Why would we know more about Matthew than most guys? Because Matthew actually wrote a book. Matthew's one of the four. He's a disciple that wrote a book talking about the entire ministry of Jesus. So we're thinking, man, we're going to get the scoop on Matthew. We'll have all kinds of background information on Matthew, but that's not the way it is. Matthew writes his entire book. He only names himself twice. Once is he recounts this event, his calling, along with other people's calling. But then the second time, he only mentions himself when he lists all 12 disciples. And he's one of them, so he's in the list. That's it. That's all we get on Matthew. So all we know is that basically he was a tax collector. A tax collector, but not a chief tax collector like Zacchaeus was, but he collected taxes. People didn't really like that. You know, that that was an issue, but uh, we don't get as much about Matthew as we like. So after, verse 27 says, so after that, he went out and noticed a tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he left everything behind, same exact thing, and got up and began to follow him. Now, so first of all, we don't know exactly why. We don't know how much Matthew knew about Jesus, but obviously he knew something about Jesus that he just left everything and followed him. But not only did he understand Jesus' authority in his life somehow, but Matthew also understood his sin. Matthew was probably the most notorious sinner of all the 12 disciples, mainly because he was a tax collector. That means he was a guy who purchased from Rome the tax franchise for a certain area. And then these tax collectors would basically, most of them would operate like loan sharks. You owe your taxes to Rome and then that would reimburse him. But anything he got on top of those taxes from people, that lined his own pockets. So he is like a loan shark. He's intimidating people. His job is to get more money out of them than they actually owe to Rome so that he could make a living. And who's he doing that? He's representing the foreign occupying power and he's betraying his fellow Jews, his neighbor, his family, his friends. And so this all plays out this way. People hated tax collectors. And Matthew seemed to have acknowledgement of his sin. As a matter of fact, Jesus later in Luke, in Luke 18, Jesus tells a story, and you'll probably remember it. It's, Jesus tells the story of two men who went to, a, to the temple. Two men go to the temple in Jerusalem, Jesus says. One is a publican, uh, one is a Pharisee, and one is a tax collector. A Pharisee and a tax collector, they both go to the temple. Then Jesus says, the Pharisee goes to the temple and he looks up into heaven and he says, God, thank you that I'm not like other sinful men, evildoers, robbers, adulterers. Thank you that I'm not like them. And by the way, thank you that I'm not like that guy over there, a tax collector. And then the Pharisee keeps praying and the Pharisee says, 
I fast twice a week. I give 10% of everything I have back to you. Thank you for not making me like that. And then Jesus says, the other guy, he doesn't even go all the way up by the temple. He stands far away. He doesn't look up at heaven. He bows his head. He's broken. He's guilty. And he just asks for forgiveness for being a sinner. And then Jesus says, that man, the tax collector, went home justified. And the other guy, the religious guy who follows all the religious rules, he didn't. That's the way Matthew must have been. Just like that. Because he seems to have a keen awareness of his sin. So Matthew responds, just like Peter did. He leaves everything. He follows Jesus. And uh, same deal. But that's not all. When he's following Jesus, like all the disciples, he's trying to learn as much as he can about Jesus. But that hasn't really started yet in the event He wants to learn and he wants to impact others. So Matthew probably doesn't know a whole lot about Jesus. And he's probably not equipped to share his faith. He's probably not equipped to to talk about who the Messiah is and what's going on and why he thinks this. He's probably not even fully equipped to tell people why he left his job. He's brand new. But his first response is he throws a party. I mean, bam, he's tax collector. He walks away from his job, a lucrative job, a good job, although a hated job, and then goes to his house, day one, throws a party. And he invites all of his tax collector friends and others, although that's the way Luke says it. Mark and Matthew says tax collectors and sinners. And sinners was a whole group of people that were obviously against God. That would include, you know, women who worked in the red light district and all that. that they just all loop, you know, lumped together sinners. Verse 29. And Levi gave a big reception for him, meaning Jesus, in his house. And there was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people, again, identified sinners by the other two people writing this, who were reclining at the table with them. And so he leaves everything. Why would he do this? Why would he throw a party? Well, because he probably wasn't all that equipped. I think he's thinking, first of all, he's probably filled with joy. Jesus is calling him, him, a tax collector. You know, all of a sudden he's, he's legitimate. Jesus is respected. Some people think he's the Messiah. He's calling me. So joy, but also mainly I think, is he has a plan, he has a purpose that he wants to impact people for Christ. So none of his friends are Jesus followers. So he invites his friends, the tax collectors and sinners, the people he hangs with, to come to his house. Because of his job, he probably has a pretty good sized house and people with pretty good houses in those days would typically have a house with a courtyard, sort of a house that would be built around a courtyard. It'd have three sides, and then the courtyard would open to the front or to the street, and usually had some sort of a fence or a little half wall there. And when you had a big party, all the guests then came in, but it would be kind of a public thing in that it was common for other people to hang around on the street and to just look over the fence and watch everything that's happening. Well, when Matthew invites all of his tax collector friends and other 
sinners, other people that he knows, but he also invites the disciples and Jesus to all come to the same party. You bet when people hear about that, they want to see this. And Matthew's probably thinking, hey, I don't know how to talk to my friends, but I want to introduce them to Jesus. I want my tax collector and sinner friends to interact with Jesus and his disciples. And so rub shoulders together, maybe build relationships. Don't know if this is a great idea or not, but I'm going for it. And he does. And he's probably wondering, boy, I wonder how this is gonna go out. I wonder if any arguments are gonna break out between the disciples you know, and these other guys. Who knows what's gonna happen? But it seems to be going amazingly well. And then all of a sudden, a group of Pharisees show up. Uh-oh. And all of a sudden, now they're at the end of the courtyard. They're looking over the fence. And they start engaging some of Jesus' disciples and talking to them like, what is going on here? What gives? And so that's kind of what, what's, what's going on. And so, because this, and the reason they're asking that is because inviting somebody to eat is sort of a, a sign of closeness. Like, you know, it, it's kind of like with us. When we, when we ask somebody to eat with us, it's usually somebody that we like or we want to get to know better or that we enjoy. You know, last night we had a, a, all of our family in except for one all over at our house. We had a good time. Actually, Aubrey stopped by right over there, the guilty one. She stopped by and she was talking to my youngest daughter because they've been friends for a long time. And so we invited Aubrey, you should stay and eat with us. You know, same thing, just invite somebody to a meal. Of course, Aubrey said no. And then she claimed that she had a date with her, her husband. So Abe, right now, I wanna know, was that true? Did you actually have a date with Aubrey last night? Okay, all right, it's confirmed, you're good. Aubrey's still on the list, all right. She's kinda like family to us, so that's all right. Uh, she, she, that was legit, all right. So Jesus wasn't married, so he said, yeah, I'll go. And he was there, and he had this thing, and now the Pharisees are going, hey, just like in, in today's age where that kinda means connectiveness when you're eating with somebody, it, that was way more true in the first century to sit down and break bread with somebody, to sit down and have a meal, that was like you are on the same page with these people. You, and especially Jewish people, did not eat with non-Jewish people. They did not eat with people who weren't following God. But here, this is all happening, and the Pharisees are asking, what is going on? They're shocked, and so they ask, verse 30. And the Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered and said to them, it is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. And then he says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. That's the way Mark and Matthew say it. But then Luke includes a little bit more where Jesus was heading with that. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance is what Luke is filling us in on. These last two clarifying words. So we hear that, and that could get the wrong thought. So here are these Pharisees. They're the guys that follow all the religious rules. They're looking over the gate. They're talking to a couple disciples. What's going on? Why is your rabbi, why is your master, why is he 
eating with people like this. Jesus overhears that and then he responds. Hey, it's not the righteous that need a doctor. It's the sick. Now, we need to make sure we don't misunderstand something. Jesus is not saying, hey, you guys are religious, so you guys are squared away and good to go. These guys are the dregs of society. I need to give them a little help, so I'm gonna work on them. That is not what he's saying because Jesus has a lot of things to say to Pharisees. What Jesus is saying, until you understand that you're sick, until you understand that you're a sinner, until you understand that you're actually an enemy of God, even though you don't feel like that, that you're on the opposite side of God until you put your faith in Christ and follow him, until you get that, you're on the wrong side and there is no hope for you. If you don't think you have sin, then Jesus didn't need to die and there's no hope. That's what Jesus is saying. So Jesus calls Peter and he calls Matthew. And he basically, it's the same pattern. They understand his authority, so they, they do what he says. They get that they're sinners. They follow him. They respond to his call by following him. And then they want to impact others. So Jesus calls Peter, Jesus calls Matthew, but Jesus also calls you and me. He also calls us, and it's the same pattern. In Matthew, the guy we're talking about in his book, he recorded something Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me, Jesus is saying, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. John records another. Come to me. If you're thirsty, come to me. Jesus is inviting us to come, but we have to recognize his authority and who he is. And for us today, that is actually easier for us than it would have been the disciples at this point in their lives. Because at this point, they haven't started being with Jesus. They're with Jesus almost three years. But this is the very beginning of that. And they're a little confused on what the Messiah is, who the Messiah is. They don't understand the Messiah is actually God in flesh. They don't get all that. We, because of their three years of being with Jesus, we now know all that. Because they've left us a record. But they didn't know. So it should be easier for us to recognize God's authority than it was even for them. We know Jesus as eternal God who actually clothed himself in humanity in order to die to pay our penalty for sin. But then that brings up the second thing. We have to admit our sin. I kind of vacillate on this. Sometimes I'm convinced everybody gets that they're a sinner. And, and it's because people, you know, everybody will say, well, I'm not perfect. But I've come to realize when people say I'm not perfect, they mean just that. They're like, I'm not perfect. But sometimes it's, it's kind of like saying, but I'm pretty good. You know, I'm not perfect. Nobody's perfect, but I'm pretty good. And they don't have an understanding that God is telling us all of us have sinned. And it's not just that. Our sin 
must be punished by a righteous and holy God. And it's not just that, it's because our sin is against a righteous and holy God who created us, gave us life and told us what to do. The penalty is way worse than we think it ought to be. It's separation from God forever in hell. And so when people say I'm not perfect, that doesn't mean that they understand. You know, for, all the, for the sin that you've done in your life, even for one of them, you deserve to be removed from God forever. And so I'm realizing not everybody gets it. So either last week or the week before, I kind of said, well, you know, if you're confused about this, just look at the 10 commandments, you know, think about the 10 commandments. But then I'm realizing nobody knows the 10 commandments hardly anymore, right? So let's just review this. We used to do this every once in a while. It's been a while. So are you a sinner? How do we know? Well, we look at the law. That's why God gave us the law to realize, hey, we don't match up. And then the law is summarized in the 10 commandments. First commandment, keep God first. Just keep God first, number one. How well are you doing that? Is there anything in your life more important than God? It could even be a good thing, like family or anything else. Is there anything in your life more important than God? If there is, you're breaking commandment number two. Commandment number one. Commandment number two is kind of connected to that. Are there any idols in your life? And I gotta tell you, the human heart is an idol factory. We keep attaching ourselves to things that are more important to us than God. Is there something like that in your heart? Number three, have you ever taken God's name in vain? Have you ever used a word that we refer to God with and said that in a flippant way. That's a violation of the third commandment, what God says we are not to do. And if you do that even one time in your life, you're guilty of the third commandment. And then there's the fourth commandment. One day in seven is holy to God. You give one day in seven and you focus on God. Have you ever failed not to do that? Not, have you ever failed to do it today because you're here, so that wouldn't be a very good test. Have you ever failed to do that? Then there's the fifth commandment. Honor your parents. Honor your mother and father. Have you ever failed to honor your mother and father? And some of you are probably thinking pretty good. When you were 13, did you ever fail to honor your mother or your father? When you were 16, walking out the door with your car keys, did you ever, and they said, where are you going? And you said, oh, I'm just going over to my friend. Did you ever fail to honor your mother or father? Six is we shouldn't murder. And so, most of us in this room, I'm not sure all, but most of us in this room are going, whoa, got one, nailed it. No murder yet. You know, I haven't done that. But then Jesus in his ministry says, hey, have you ever been ticked off at somebody? Jesus says, have you ever hated somebody in your heart? Jesus says, you know, when you hate somebody in your heart, you're wishing that they weren't around. That's the same root sin as murder. You just don't have the guts to do anything about it. And so all of a sudden we realize, wow, 
The one that I was pretty sure I was good on, I've broken that commandment. Same thing with adultery, number seven. Have you ever had a physical relationship with somebody that you weren't married to, ever? You violated the seventh commandment. Eight, have you ever stolen, ever taken somebody, something from somebody that did not belong to you? You took it. You know, that's stealing. Have you ever done that? Did you ever do that as a teenager? Number nine, have you ever said something that wasn't true? Have you ever borne false witness? Have you ever tried, have you ever recounted a story and you made yourself look way better than you really looked in that incident because you kind of shaded it and twisted it to make you look better? Or just to get out of a jam, did you just flat out lie? Or did somebody ask you, what do you think of this, honey? <laughs> Be careful because you need more wisdom than I do on how to answer that question. But, you know, or have you ever lied? And then the last one is, have you ever wanted something that somebody else had? And then it goes on to explain, like somebody else's wife, or their husband, or their car, or their house. Have you ever wanted something that they had? Because sometimes we could want something they have, somebody else has so bad. If it gets really bad, we'll not just want it, we'll wish that they didn't have it because they have something that we don't have if we can't get it. That's called coveting. Those are sins. We have to admit that we've sinned. And you start piling all those up and we don't remember all of our sin. God remembers everything. God just knows everything. So we could kid ourselves and feel, we are all sinners. We all deserve separation from God. We've all violated what God told us to do. We've all rebelled against our creator. But God says he loves us anyway. And he'll offer forgiveness. We just have to admit it. And he'll forgive us. You know, you can't forgive somebody that doesn't admit that they didn't. Have you ever had that? You know, you really did this wrong to me. You stole this from me, you know, whatever. I'm willing to forgive you. And they're like, I didn't do anything. I, I don't need your forgiveness. I didn't do anything. You, you can't restore the relationship, right? That's why the Bible says, well, you, maybe you need somebody else to come to make sure they did do anything wrong with you. The relationship is only stored. When forgiveness is needed, when, when, a, when an offense actually happens, relationship is only restored when somebody understands, yeah, you're right, I should not have done that to you, that was wrong. They admit they're wrong, and then the other person can say, you're forgiven. So you've offended me, you owe me, you've done something against me, but to say forgive is to say, I'm gonna bear the weight of that, I'm gonna absorb that wrong and not hold it against you anymore and if it's a violation of trust, I'm not holding that against you and I will work with you to restore trust, more and more trust in the future. I will bear it and you don't owe me for this. That's forgiveness. But that can only happen if we admit our sin. We can't go, I didn't really do anything to you. There's no connection then. You gotta figure out, maybe he or she didn't do anything, so you figure that out. But if they did do something, you gotta come to agreement. That's the way it is with God. We have to admit our sins, we come to him. But the joy of it, what's Matthew doing? He's throwing a party, why? 
He realizes in Christ, somewhere he realizes, you know, that, hey, and Jesus is the answer. He's the one we've been waiting for. He's the one that's gonna fix everything. That's exactly what he did. He fixes our sin by paying the penalty for us. So sin is still punished. It's just not us being punished for it. He'll take our place. He'll take our punishment if we admit our sin Turn to him in repentance. Is that what that little word meant? That just means we admit our sin, we put our trust in Jesus, and we want to follow him. We want to, in gratitude, we want to follow him with our life. That's what Jesus is calling all of us to. And then when we want to follow him with our life and joy, we want to do life the way he wants us to do life, We'll want to impact others. We'll want other people to have the forgiveness that we have. We'll want other people to experience the joy we have in Christ. That we are messed up sinners, but God loves us anyway. And he died for our sins so we can spend eternity in joy with him in relationship. If you've never put your trust in Christ, no better day than today. So a couple things happened. Last week I told you, people picked up packets. I think we gave out 16 or 17, and then we ran out. And so I, I don't know of anybody that didn't get one. It seemed like we just had enough right down to the last one. But if you wanted one and didn't pick one up, we, we have a package just to ex- help explain some of the things I've been talking to you. It includes a, you know, a book that I like and a little card that you know, what a decision for Christ means. So you should get that. If you're doing that today, you can do that as simply as just turn your heart to God and say, God, I admit I've sinned against you. you. Jesus died for me. I'm asking you forgiveness based on that. Help me to follow you. Come into my life. When you do that sincerely, that's what it means to become a believer. If you haven't done that, I'm asking you to do that. That's the most important decision in your life. Again, if you do that today, if you're doing that now, we have a packet that might help you. You know, we think will help you. It'd be good information. What about all these questions? It'll answer some questions for you. One more thing. If you know you've already done that, and we sat in this service and we kind of rejoiced over 84 people getting baptized, and you realized, yeah, I put my faith in Christ, but I've not got dunked underwater since then. Well, that's like one of the first things that God's telling us to do. That won't get you to heaven. It's your faith in Christ that gets you to heaven. You're already guaranteed heaven if you're truly putting your faith in Christ. But one of the things Jesus is telling us to do is to follow him in believer's baptism. It's an outward symbol. Something's happened on the inside in your heart. Getting baptized is an outward way of saying, this has happened. Hey, I, I'm, I'm, my old life is buried. I'm living a new life following Jesus. And you missed it. You got another one coming up in a couple of months? Grab a card, put your name and phone number on it and mark baptism and we'll contact you when we get a little closer to that and explain that to you. Let's stand together. Father God in heaven, we thank you for your goodness and Lord, those of us who are here and are believers, we know we don't deserve it. We're sinners 
We deserve hell, but you've forgiven us because you paid the price. And God, we thank you for that greatest gift that we don't deserve. And Father, we're asking that other people in this room that have not come to you that way, Lord, that they would also see your authority, admit their sin, turn to you, want to follow you, respond to your offer of salvation. I'd help them to do that. Draw them to yourself. That they can just talk to you in their own heart. Father, we thank you for loving us. Help us to be the church you want us to be. Help us to be the people that you want us to be. Lord, and help us to feel the joy of serving you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.